Again, we're continuing in the, what is called the passion of Jesus. And in a general sense, passion, the suffering, the difficulties, the condescension coming down of Jesus. And in a general way, the incarnation, beginning with the conception in Mary, began the passion of the Son of God. We do see that. To be confined in some way to a human body while, let me hear what I'm going to say. The Son of God in the incarnation, taking to himself a human body and soul, being confined to a human body while at the same time upholding all the universe with the word of his power. You see, because some people think, well, when Jesus was in the, you know, the incarnation, the Son of God was incarnate in the man Jesus. He had left. He wasn't doing anything. This is the incredible amazement of the incarnation. That the Son of God, the creator of all things and the sustainer of all creation the prime mover, the maintainer, is at the same time indwelling the man, the son of man, as he is upholding and administering all things. Is this incredible or not? So let's make sure we don't kind of confuse what is happening to the son of God. But his passion but specifically, the passion of Jesus is typically concentrating on that short period of time during which he is tried, convicted, arrested, tried, convicted, beaten, ridiculed, etc. Goes to the cross, is crucified, and then he dies. So that's, we're still in then that, if you would, passion, that whole passion week, but specifically the heightenedness of it. And so in Matthew 27, we saw last week, and go go back and just say one or two words about this and move along. In verses 1 and 2, when morning came, you remember after the mock trial, and Andy did such a lovely job with that, the mock trial. After the mock trial, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And so morning has arrived and the priests and the elders take Jesus to Pilate. And what are they hoping? They're hoping that they can get Pilate to condemn Jesus to death, to agree with their sentence of death, but on, on a different ground of reasoning, but to put him to death. Now, they had to go to Pilate because at this time in their history, the Roman authorities had taken away the Jewish ability to put someone to death. This was no longer their prerogative. And so they had to go to Rome to do this. And so they go to Pilate, who is in town, you remember, to keep the peace because of Jerusalem's uh, celebration, uh, celebration in Jerusalem of the Passover, where perhaps, and Josephus says, Upwards to a million people. I mean, can you imagine that kind of number of people? And 
until they're very afraid of riots. And so Pilate is in town to administer this, and the authorities take opportunity to go to Pilate for that. And in doing so, they are unwittingly fulfilling God's eternal plan for the redemption of his people. See, they are doing what they want to do, which is to put the Son of God or the Son of Man to death. And in their minds, they are promoting the purpose of God as they understand it. But they are really, God is promoting his own purpose in them and through them for the death of his own son. And so in demanding Jesus' death, they were placing themselves under the sentence of death by rejecting the very gospel that is God's only means of redeeming them from their sin. And so by demanding that this man be put to death, they were putting themselves under the same sentence of death. Why? Because Jesus is the gospel. We have to understand there is the gospel, but the essence of the gospel is the Son of Man himself. Correct? He is the gospel. And so this is what's happening, and they're not understanding this. And so as that's happening, we read in verse 3, then when, then when, verse 1 and 2, Jesus is been submitted to a trial, a mock trial, they find him what? Guilty of, what do they find him guilty of? Blasphemy. They find him guilty of proclaiming himself to be the son of God and the Messiah. Okay, blasphemy. And they condemning to death and to taking him to Pilate. Then, what's then? Then what? When Judas realized that Jesus was being taken to Pilate to be condemned to death. You got it? The procession is going to Pilate's. Then Judas realizing what's happening. He realizes in the trial. I don't know. We don't know where he is, but we know that's happening. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. In your notes, do you have that underlined? Do you have that in your notes, that verse? All right, I want, you to change, I want you to underline that. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Now, I was, again, planning to go quickly through this and go to the Roman trials. And the Lord said, eh, stop, put on your brakes. I want you to talk about something that we all need to have much better understanding of. Change his mind. When Judas realized that Jesus was condemned to death, he changed his mind. Now, that brings up a fundamental question. Did Judas repent of his sin? He changed his mind. Do you you see that, David, where he said that? He changed his mind. You see, the Greek word here in this particular passage for changing his mind comes from the root word, metanoia, that has to do with, I'm sorry, not metanoia. Uh, there it goes. There, out of the mind. Forget it. Uh, that has to do with changing a person's mind. 
And so it's a root word that comes, it's a word that comes from the root meaning to change your mind. In the Greek, it simply means just a different uh, opinion about something, to think differently about. So it has to do with the changing of one's thoughts or decisions. I'm going this way, I'm changing my mind, and I'm going to go this way. That's all it means in the Greek. But, of course, it's taken over in the New Testament and applied in a theological or a moral way, having moral and theological context. So when we see that Judas changed his mind, does that mean that Judas repented? Some would say yes. Some would say no. Most would have no idea. And so it means that to think differently about has no intrinsic, as I said, moral implication unless the reason for its decision is a moral decision. And then it takes on the connotation of what we understand as repentance. So let's look at the idea or the fruit of biblical repentance. Let's see what biblical repentance is all about and talk about that this morning. And then next week, we'll unpack a particular verse of Scripture, Second Corinthians 7. I think it's um, 8 through 11 or 10 through somewhere around there. I'm forgetting exactly how far we want to go with that. Of course, you see, this raises the question about the distinction and emphasis of what the Bible means by repentance. Because you see the word repent all over the place. Biblically, repentance involves a change of mind. Now, you, you need to make sure you get this. We need to make sure we get this. This is fundamental to our ability to be saved and to our ability to be sanctified in Christ. If we don't get this, you first cannot be saved And if you are saved, you cannot be sanctified or conform to the image of God's Son except through the activity of repenting. And you'll see that. So biblical repentance involves a change of mind that is produced by a change of heart about any particular sinful activity. So I am sinning. I am disobeying God. I'm walking the wrong way then all of a sudden, I become convicted by the Spirit. And we'll look at that in a moment. And becoming convicted by the Spirit that this is sin, then my heart should be changed. My heart's desire to sin should be changed. Are you with me? You see, if we are convicted by sin and our heart's desire is not changed, There is a major problem in us and all of us. It doesn't matter the area of sin. It just matters when I am convicted by it, whether I read it in the word, however, a a friend of mine or a brother or sister in the Lord confronts me. However, it is the Holy Spirit has convicted me of sin. That should touch my heart. When the Holy Spirit convicts, he convicts for the purpose of touching my heart. And once my heart is convicted, what does my mind or should my mind say? I'm going to agree with God concerning the conviction that he's putting upon me. Amen? My mind should say that. Now, unfortunately, probably for all of us to some extent, at some times or another, our minds don't agree with our hearts. Amen? How many of us know that this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway? Anybody ever think that way? Anybody? 
Only two people. That's not bad. Ronnie, you and I are together. You know, okay, that's it. So this change of heart and mind always results in a change of moral behavior. Which means that biblical repentance always produces biblical moral behavior. A change in moral behavior. Do we get that? Always produces a biblically acceptable moral behavior. Always. Not just sometimes. In other words, if there is no moral change, then we cannot truthfully and accurately say, I have repented. We have to be careful, and we'll see this in a little while, that repentance necessarily has nothing to do with tears. And if there are tears, that may be wonderful. But tears in and of themselves don't denote, connote rather, repentance. I can unfortunately say that I have seen in several people over the years, tears a brokenness, uh, uh, this emotional, and I'm not making fun, real, uh, uh, but the result of it is no change, Donnie. And so what was that brokenness about? Well, we'll see that next week when we talk about 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But if there is no biblical change, there is no repentance. So I say this to me and to you, to us together. We have to be very careful to make judgments based on emotional experience and immediate reaction. Can you say amen? Amen. We have to be very careful about myself and about ministering and walking with others. Well, did Gordon repent? Well, yeah, he repented. How do you know? Because, man, you should have seen this man when he was confronted with that sin. He fell apart, and he wept, and he was all over the place. Yes, he repented. Not necessarily. So what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do this morning is to make sure that we, he clarifies in us and for us this very centrally basic necessity Of what biblical repentance is all about. So to make sure you did not get it misunderstood. Does biblical repentance have nothing to do necessarily with emotion? No. It can involve very deep emotion. Or it may involve very little emotion. Can you say amen? We are not. We cannot judge by the fleshly display of emotion. And when I say fleshly, I'm not putting it down. You understand? There have been times in my own life, let me tell you, where I was physically broken. And there are other times when, oh, okay. It wasn't that I was nonchalant, but I I didn't have that, (gasps) whatever. Listen to three of these scriptures I have here. That Holy Spirit, I think, gave them to me. Luke 3, 8. Remember, John the Baptist tells the Pharisees who were coming to be baptized, you know. bring. He says, who warned you vipers about the wrath to come? 
you know, you snakes. He said, bring forth fruit in keeping with or in compliance with or as a result of or as a display or proof of your repentance. Fruit. Acts 3.19, Peter is preaching to the crowd. And he says, repent, therefore, and what? Turn. Revelation 2.5, Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus. And he says this, repent and do the works that you did at first. Remember, you left your first love. And so there's always, biblically speaking, repentance equals moral change, if you don't mind my saying it that way. And I don't want to offend anybody, but moral change is not a bad word because we're talking about within the context of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Change toward God. Therefore, the purpose of repentance is the undoing of any sinful behavior in favor of a behavior that bears fruit for God. Okay, now that's, that's very, very important. We must make sure that we do not connect too closely our feelings and emotional reactions to the revelation of sin to repentance. I didn't say don't connect it at all. I said don't connect it too closely. But to make sure that in the one coin, if you would, repentance is one side and what? And turning, bearing fruit is the other side. Now, we'll talk about what that other side is called theologically, but we're not getting into that today. And I know some of you, and rightly so, are wondering, wait a minute, the Bible says repentance, and we'll, we'll talk about that next week. This means that repentance of sin is the required prerequisite that produces fruit pleasing to God. You can't please God apart from repenting from revealed sin. Remember Paul's prayer in Colossians chapter 1 verse 9 and he's praying that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And he says, he goes on, he says all spiritual wisdom and knowledge. And then he says in verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Well, what does that look like? What does walking in a manner worthy of the Lord look like? Pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work. So this is what repentance does. It produces, or sorry, it allows us to experience the pleasing of God. Can God be displeased with his children? Well, certainly he can. Can I be displeased with my daughter? Well, certainly. There are two aspects, though. As far as her relationship and our fellowship together as father and daughter, am I displeased with that, that relationship? With the fact that she's my daughter, am I displeased? Never. There is a constant pleasure about that. But then when it comes to the way Ashley may act or what she may say or do that I would disagree with, then my pleasure or displeasure is elicited as a result of the way she lives or my grandchildren. And all of you know that. I dare say that all of us have children or grandchildren that from one time or another have displeased us, correct? And yet when it comes to the relationship itself, we are not displeased. We are very and constantly, hopefully, we're pleased. Let's make sure we get that. So why is this pleasing to God? 
Because John 15, 8, Jesus tells this, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear what? Much fruit. And so, and so what? Prove to be my disciples. You see, fruit bearing in a believer, <coughs> obedience in a believer, is not only the manifestation of, but the honoring of the person of Christ in us by the Spirit. So this is critical. We were saved for one purpose, that we would bear fruit for God. That's the only reason we were saved. We were saved to be the living image bearers of God himself. And the image of God is who? Colossians 1.15. Christ is what? The image of the invisible God. And so we have one reason. There's only one reason we were saved. To bear fruit for God as his children. And the only way you can bear fruit is to be in his family. And as his children. Imbued with the Holy Spirit. Forgiven. <coughs> saved. And so when our lives are displaying the fruit of Christ. Or the fruit of the Spirit if you like. God is pleased. And to the extent that that's not happening, the Holy Spirit begins to put his finger on areas of our lives that are not in keeping with the very person and character and work of Christ himself. That's what our sin is about, when it's not in keeping with the very person and character of Christ himself. And the nature of this fruit is repentance. Remember, the fruit for repentance. The fruit of the Spirit. What does the fruit of repentance look like? Galatians five twenty two to 23. If you're not sure what the fruit of the Spirit looks like, then read Galatians five twenty two and 23. And the fruit of the Spirit, the word kapos is, is singular. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Okay, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit that God is looking for. Why? Because God is love. Remember 1 John 4? So what is the initial experience of love joy what is the initial effect of love peace and what is the expression of love the rest of it right correct the fruit of the spirit is love the initial and continuing what Experience of love is what? Joy. Jesus said, my joy I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. So that your joy may be full. This is the joy that God has within himself about himself. It is not an earthly or fleshly joy. It is a joy that is absolutely, completely alien to us as human beings. And then the effect of this love is what? Peace. Peace with whom? With God. Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And it is also the peace of God. The activity of that peace. And so the warfare that has, was true of us before we were saved. Remember, we were enemies. Remember what Paul says in Romans 5. We were enemies. 5.8, I think it is. That war has been declared as in, our, in relation to us, the war is over. 
Why? Because the cross has paid, at the cross, Jesus has paid the price for the war to be over. So peace, peace is that, that effect that God has within himself, about himself, total, complete peace and settlement and satisfaction. It's the peace that God experiences within himself among the three persons of the Trinity. It is absolutely, totally alien from any peace we would ever have within ourselves as constituted, created beings. But we now have it by the Spirit. And then the rest of the words, the expression, patience, what? Love, joy, patience. You see the list? Those words are the outworking of what the loving, joyful, peaceful work of God is in us. And so these, the rest of these words, where am I? Oh, here I am. Patience. This is not my patience. This is not my trying to be patient with someone. Okay, Lord, I'm going to try to be more patient. This is the patience of God himself with us as his people. This is alien patience. Alien patience. It's alien kindness. It's not human kindness. We can't manufacture this. It's not human goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It's alien. This is all God's work in us by the Spirit. And so the love of God, which is an absolute alien love, it's totally unique within God himself. And so as believers, we are not to be trying to love one another and trying to make ourselves more congenial with one another and more forgiving of one another and more patient. We can't do that, do you see? We must go to the Holy Spirit and rely upon him and allow him to speak to us and convict us where his love is functioning better in some areas of our lives than in other areas. And where his love is not functioning to the place where he desires it to be, we repent. Um, may, May I hear something from you? We repent saying what, Billy? Yes, you're right. My love in this area for what this person, this situation, for whatever it is, is not what it should be. Why? Because your love is not being manifested in me because of my sin, my flesh, or whatever. So, Holy Spirit, would you deal with this? You see, this is not a life of self-generated moral activity. It's a life of self-dependent, I'm sorry, God-dependent moral, if you would, using it within that context, activity of God. And repentance is that work of God that allows this to be functioning and continuing to grow in us. It's not just repenting for stealing and lying and all of that. It's repenting for everything that is not of Christ. Amen? Of everything. This is the fruit that displays the glory of God, unique love for us in Christ. This is, by the way, the fruit that evangelizes the world. Remember? That you may love one another. Why? That they may know that you are my disciples. This is the evangelistic love. This is the power of evangelism right here. 
this church does an incredible job of putting out flyers or sharing the gospel, whatever. But the power of evangelism is our love for one another. Why? Because when it's that kind of biblical love, the people of the world are seeing a unique, unique love that is not possible, nor does it exist anywhere within humanity. They see it and understand it as the Holy Spirit reveals it to them, that this is God in his people. And seeing it is God in his people, the Holy Spirit draws those who have not yet been born again, and he draws his people into the kingdom as he is displayed in his people. Correct? This is evangelism. Frank, right? This is evangelism. Loving one another. Does that exclude all the other activities? Well, of course not, but this is the heart of it. So that when the love, the uniqueness of the person and presence and the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus himself, himself is uniquely displayed in us, replacing our love for his, overcoming our self-love by his love, the love that God has within himself among the persons of the Trinity. That's what the world sees, and when it sees the Holy Spirit convicts his people who have not yet been born again and brings them into the kingdom through this power, correct? This is the wooing, wooing, working love of God. Why the necessity of repentance? Romans 2, 4, Paul is talking to the, those who have the law, and he says, don't you know that it's God's goodness is meant to lead you to repentance? So this means that biblical repentance is the loving work of God's spirit in us to our, as to our salvation and the continuing work of his love in us as to our sanctification. Repentance has to do with being born again, and it has to do with growing in Christ, walking with him day by day. It's a necessity. Remember Mark in Mark's gospel, it begins this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in verse 5, Jesus is speaking to the crowds, the first sermon that Mark uh, records. And he says, the time has come. What time? What time? The kairos, the season has come. The kingdom of God is near. Wow. How do we become members of the kingdom? What does he say? Repent and believe the good news. Repent and have faith in the good news. So the first aspect is not having faith. It's repenting. It's the work, the initial work of the Holy Spirit in each one of us to bring us into the kingdom of God and to keep us into the kingdom of God. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom, but entrance of the kingdom was through biblical repentance. In Luke 13, 5, Jesus tells the crowds, unless you repent, you're going to hell. I mean, what, isn't what he says, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. What does he mean by that, Butch? You're going to hell. And you say, wow, 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 I don't don't want to say that. The world needs to hear a very clear message, not a message that we are condemning them, but a message that they are condemned. And this is the only way to escape the wrath to come. So when they hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit begins to work in their hearts, hopefully and they will respond by repenting of their life apart from Christ and receiving Christ by faith. Now, 
godly grief of repentance. I think I have enough time to make sure I do this right. No, I don't. Well, I may have to go back next week and do some of this. Godly grief of repentance. The reason that biblical repentance of sin is required, is required for salvation, is that it involves a change of heart and mind about God. You see, we, were, we are too quick to think repentance has to do with a change of heart and mind about myself and about what I do. Correct? Come on, come on, come on, come on. Isn't that correct? We see repentance having to do with us essentially. That's the area of weakness. This is the area where so many fail in their understanding and as a result of that are not able to walk without sin as much as we should. Godly grief, repentance, biblically speaking, is a change of heart and mind produced by the Holy Spirit, not about me essentially, but certainly about what I am doing or saying, because as it relates to God. And so biblical repentance has God as its object, not me. The secondary or the fruit of God being the object is the fruit that is manifested in me by his Holy Spirit as I am cooperating with this work of convicting unto repenting. And that's very important. We need to make sure we get this. Biblical repentance recognizes that every sin of mine is a target against God. Now, we don't think that way, do we? Well, you know, I just didn't. Every sin is targeted against the glory, the honor, the truth, the whatever, the righteousness, whatever word you want to put in there of God himself. Every sin of ours is our attempt to pull the, arrow, pull the bow and shoot the arrow of our sin into the face of our God. Every sin. Every sin. You see, as I said last week, sin is worse than we think it is. One of the major weaknesses in the church today is this. We don't understand, neither do we believe that sin is as terrible as it is. Except for certain sins, of course. Oh, oh, don't do that! And so... Somewhere, somebody said Jesus was without sin. Does somebody say that somewhere? Who said that? Holy Spirit in what book? Tempted in every way such as we yet without sin. Somebody said that to somebody somewhere. Does anybody remember where that is in Hebrews? You look it up. Now, again, I said this last week, but what does it mean? What we think it means is this. Barry, we think it means this. Jesus didn't get drunk. Sissy, it means this. Jesus didn't steal. Now, that's true. But it means so much deeper. Here's what it means. That there wasn't a moment. There was not a thought. There was not a word. There was not a motive. There was not anything about Jesus' life 
that was not under the absolute comprehensive continuing control of the Holy Spirit. Everything. Everything. And anything about his life that was apart from the Holy Spirit is sin. Is sin. So what does that say about me, Celeste? My life is to be lived that way too. So it's, it's bigger than just doing, not doing more of the bad things. And so when we begin to realize it, oh my word. Oh my heavens. That means I, I took that job and I didn't even pray. That means we went over there and we didn't even think about God in it. Well, God has given you a rational mind and an intellect and Judy. You know, with that, you should make your own decisions. Jesus had the best rational mind and intellect of any man on earth, and yet he didn't do that himself. John 5, 19 and 5, 30 tell you that. He didn't even do it. Did he? Anybody, anybody have a problem with what I just said? The most rational and intellectual man upon the earth. And Kenny, he didn't even live that way, did he? He didn't say, well, you know, God gave me a good mind. And so I'm going to live this way. And I can make some decisions on my own because God told me what to do. And I can. He didn't do that. You see, sin is worse. It's a repudiation of the very person and work of Christ and a rejection of his Holy Spirit in us. Do you see how much more pervasive? How many of you now realize uh, sin is much more pervasive in me than I thought? Uh, really? How many of you realize that right now? Anybody realize that right now? That you mean everything? Yes. How can I live that way? The same way Jesus did. By looking to the Holy Spirit every moment. And when he convicts us that we didn't do it, what? Repent. Every sin is offensive to God because it dishonors his name and repudiates his love for us. I just want to see how far I want to go. I'll stop here and say this. Do you have this in your verse, uh, your outline, 2 Timothy 2, 25, 6? Do you have that in your... Okay, I want to end with this today. Now, let's be honest, because we know the answer anyway. How many of us, when we're convicted of sin, know we need to repent? Do we know that? Okay. How many of us, when we're convicted of sin... Okay, I'm going to try to repent. I'm going to repent. How many of us make the decision, okay, this is what I'm going to start doing. I'm going to repent. I make a decision. I'm going to repent. And you always, or at least a whole lot of the time, you're going to fail. You're going to fail because we did it wrong. You see, when we're convicted of sin, the Bible doesn't say, Rochelle, you need to start trying to repent. It doesn't say that. It tells us to repent. But when you get to 2 Timothy 2.25, look at that verse. Everybody read it. That God may what? That God may what? That, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. That God may what? Grant us what? Repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. Now, that doesn't mean just to be born again, but it has everything. So, who is the author and what is the source and the power of our repentance? The Holy Spirit, God himself. So I'm going to leave you with this today. Stop 
trying to repent. And when I am convicted of sin, what I do, what I do, and what you must do also, I'm convicted of sin. Who told me that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't tell me that in order to make me repent and do something within the context of my own fleshly, natural abilities. I can't do it. I'm going to fail. I've just added another sin. So what do I do? Father, I agree with your convicting sentence, your statement, your revelation. I was wrong. I'm asking you to grant me repentance to cause the Holy Spirit, send the Spirit to produce in me godly repentance that leads to life. This is where we have it so backward and why there's so much failure in the church today to be living lives that are better demonstrable, you know, demonstrating God's love. We're trying to repent in our own abilities and we're failing. What we need to do is to go to this God. And does he want to grant his children repentance every time? Yes, but he doesn't want us to do it on our own. He wants us to do it by the Spirit. Romans, I think it's 8.13, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. You see, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So what is repentance? It is the work, your unilateral work of God. Bringing me to an understanding that what I've just done is sin. Producing in me a heart that desires to repudiate that sin and turn from it. Creating in my mind a context and a decision to ask God to produce in me the very repentance for which he has convicted me. Don't assume differently. We're not called to do this out of the context of our own intellect or even out of the context of our own knowledge of the Word of God. We're called to do it by the Spirit of God. Amen? So the next time you sin, and wait a few moments. Wait a moment or two. And God convicts you of sin. Yes, Father, you're right. Remember confession agreeing with. Father... Or Holy Spirit, it's okay to speak to the Holy Spirit directly. Produce in me repentance that leads to godly fruit. Amen? It's all about God. It's all from God, and it's all for God. Next week, we'll talk about the 2 Corinthian passage that you have in your notes and some other things. Thank you.